Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are here for Breaking the Glass Slipper live at Worldcon 2019. So, much of W.B. Yeats' poetry is inspired by the rich mythological fabric of Ireland. And this is the land of the she, the banshee, the marrow. But the island itself has a character, an identity, in the geographical, historical and metaphysical sense. So, in homage to our host country, we'll be, taking, we'll be talking about the place of islands in the human imagination. From Avalon to the archipelago of Earthsea, Islands appear in speculative fiction with regularity. They, often play, they are often places of magic and ritual, home to unfamiliar peoples, creatures, and social structures. They have a unique relationship with the ocean, which holds multiple roles, boundary, barrier, provider. So to discuss islands and their place in fantastical literature, we have a fantastic panel. So before we get stuck in with the discussion, we'll have... Um, our panel introduced themselves, so we should start at the end. <laughs> Hi, I'm Vida. I graduated from Clarion in 2014. I, uh, was, I was a recipient of the Tip Tree Fellowship for this year. Um, if my chapbooks arrive today, you can buy them at the dealer's room. <laughs> if. Also, I'm from the Philippines, and that's about 7,107 islands, so I think I can talk about this. Uh, I'm Joe Walton. Uh, I write science fiction and fantasy. Uh, I also write about science fiction and fantasy. I lost a best-related work, uh, Hugo, last night for my informal history of the Hugos. Uh, I am from Wales, which is part of an island. Uh, and I've written and read lots of stuff that is on islands, so uh, I guess I can address this. Hi, I'm Alexandra Rowland. I am the author of A Conspiracy of Truths and the forthcoming A Choir of Lies. I am also a podcaster uh, from uh, World Building for Masochists, which is exactly what it says on the tin, and uh, Be the Serpent, which had the great honor of losing a Hugo to Charlie Jane Anders and Annalie Newitz last night. Uh, I am delighted for them. I am also a, uh, I got my degree in folklore and mythology, uh, and I, I guess if we're doing like our relation to islands, I grew up on a sailboat uh, sailing around the Caribbean. Uh, until I was about 10 years old. So that's my experience with islands. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. fair enough. (laughs) I mean, I'm Megan Lee, and I am the co-host of Breaking the Glass Slipper, and I don't really have any connection to islands. I probably don't belong here. No, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm um, also one-third of Breaking the Glass Slipper. And, well, I'm from the UK, so uh, that's that's an island the last time I checked. (laughs) I mean, let's just kick off the discussion with just some, like, really, like, fangirling about our favourite islands, favourite fictional islands, and, like, what is it that you love about them and, and what makes them unique to a fantastical setting? Oh. <laughs> Anyone can jump Anyone. in. Anyone. Well, I mean, you mentioned Earthsea already. 
Uh, but that's kind of got to be my favourite fictional archipelago. And the fact that it is made of islands allowed Le Guin to have distinct but related cultures and cultures that were in a connection to each other that is a connection that you connect by boat and uh, not by walking and having having the liminal space be the sea mm. constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the beginning of A Wizard of Earthsea says that Gaunt is an island famous for wizards. And that's just immediately putting you into a space that is an island that is surrounded by sea. And uh, so so if it's fa- favourite fictional islands, uh, probably Earthsea. Mine is um, the Islands of Aberat in Clive Barker's Aberat yes. series. And if you don't know what that is, um, each island represents an hour on the clock, and it is constantly that time on that island, and there are lots of um, fantastic creatures, races, all that jazz on the islands. But I guess my favorite part is the sea is a living character in the series, and it's it's just beautiful. I I noticed that when other people write about islands and water and ocean, they write it with a sense of fear. But in Aberat, the ocean, like in Moana, the ocean is a friend, and it's a magical friend, but it's also a dangerous friend. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have a specific one. I'm thinking more of like the archetype of the like traveling or disappearing island uh, from mythology, uh, where uh, I don't know if you would consider Avalon one, but um, there's some others like the islands that are on the back of giant sea turtles or the islands that are slightly of fairyland that you visit once and then you try to return to them and you can never find them again, uh, or islands that uh, sink beneath the sea or are lost forever. Uh, and that just, I, I'm trying to identify like what it is I love so much about them, and I think it's just that like it's this connection to the mysterious and the fact that we sometimes in the world brush up against these things that we don't fully understand and then when we try to come back to them we can never locate them again I totally agree uh, with the mysterious um, kind of floating magical islands because I've always loved Laputa I think that's, mm. uh, the, the that's a great film. example it's a wonderful film and it's so um, when they you know like they just it's just glimpsed and then the fact that it's in a thundercloud and then when they actually get there it's, it's it's eerie and deserted and full of mysteries i think that's it's got to be one of my favorites and the, there's also the odyssey uh, where odysseus goes to so many islands and has so many different magical island experiences and the sort of islandness of of the Odyssey and of Homer, and Homer's sort of real personal experience with islands from living in Greece, which is full of islands, is sort of everywhere in in the Odyssey, which is one of the foundational European texts that sort of gives us islands. Mm -hmm. And similarly, when I was a small child, I read the Narnia books, and the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader... Uh, visiting all of those islands one by one was probably my first experience of that trope where the islands are are different magical things because I read that before I read the Odyssey. 
So that sort of feels sort of island foundational for my interaction with with islands. Whatever I think about the problematic nature of of Lewis, really, I still love that voyage, <laughs> the the voyage into the uttermost east. Yeah, and those those islands along the way. Yeah, I mean, some of the ones that I've really enjoyed recently would obviously be Madeline Miller's version of Cersei, which the island is is very much a part of the character itself, and and I love that. But also, I'm going to give a shout out to Cat Ward, who's been on the show before. Um, but Little Eve uses the island as a place of of, of horror, of fear, as as Vita was discussing. Um, but it really does make it extra creepy because you can't get away and. Yeah, that really works for me. But that is a very nature of the island, the isolation. And it does provide a rich source for storytellers to create tension. I mean, why do we find it so interesting to see a contained ecosystem? And especially one that we can then go into and disrupt whatever's been happening on that island separate from a mainland. So from a craft perspective, um, it's really convenient for the writer because then you have a contained space. As, as you said, you don't really have to... Well, you, you can if you want to, but you have the option of limiting the island's interaction to uh, internal stuff. You don't necessarily have to emphasize their relation to their neighbors unless you want to. Um, you have the excuse to like not have international politics. <laughs> um, and that can simplify a lot of things. It can make it a little bit more streamlined. But also the interactions that they have then get complicated because it has to be a deliberate choice that they are making. You know, like you can't accidentally bump into someone from another country if you live on an island. Either they have to have deliberately gotten built a boat, gotten on the boat, and then sailed towards you, or you have had to do that thing. Uh, so it adds a an element of intentionality uh, to uh, interpersonal interactions and, and clashes between cultures, if that makes sense. I just want to point out that the view of islands as isolated and places of exile is a very mainlander way of viewing islands. Yeah. Um, yes. I, my people have always lived on our archipelago, so I wouldn't say that we view islands as isolated. And um, actually, my, um, in many Southeast Asian cultures, um, Water, for example, because you can't talk about islands without talking about water. Water is not something that separates the islands. It is a bridge. And bridges were only introduced later when colonizers came over. So um, for me, islands are not a place of fear, isolation, exile. They're just simply the place where I live. Mm -hmm. But also, um, I see. it seems to be that Islomania, there's just like an extreme love of islands, is a thing that befalls people on mainland cultures because islands are not something that you're familiar with. Um, They become obsessed with islands as places they can go to to get away from the mainland. And um, honestly, when that happens, they tend to forget that there were already people living on the islands. Mm -hmm. 
and that is definitely a disruption of the ecosystem that is already there. In fact, you see it today. Um, for example, I'm sure your ideal vacation is like sandy white beach by the sea and you're sunning yourself and you're warm. But that is, um, this is what we make a business out of where I live. It's our tourism. It's always there. And you know what? We could take it for granted because it's always there. But we also get pretty angry when those places are destroyed in the name of tourism. Sorry, that was not literature anymore. <laughs> but, but we do see that in literature. I mean, that's, that, that's one of the things that, that islands can very conveniently be used for in literature to talk about colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about Sophia Samatar's A Stranger in a Laundria, uh, which, which does that really brilliantly. And because the island is, is discreet, really, however you think about it, an island is discreet with, with a border, and it lets you contrast things very clearly. I think that's why people have traditionally written utopias on islands, because it's the idea that you could, you could believe that there's a completely isolated culture on an island, but you couldn't believe there's a completely isolated culture that's right next door to you. And like I said, Homer really had all these islands that he really would have visited. He came from an island. There were other islands. They had other things on them. So it was quite easy to imagine that the next island could have anything. It could be a magic island. Um, Another one that deals with the island and disrupting the island as uh, colonialism is Peter Dickinson's flight which is a novella that's in Robbie McKinley's... Um, what the heck is that book called? Uh, boy, it's a, it's a collection. It's an old collection. Um, and uh, it, it, it is literally... The, the story is an analogy for the way that places are colonised and the things that people do with dealing with, with both colonisers and the way that the colonisers interpret the culture of the colonised people and reinterpreted and history and all of that kind of thing. And this was written in, like, 1976 or something like that. Mm. Uh, and and it's, it's really terrific. And that's one of the things that got me started thinking about uh, post-colonial stuff. Um, and he grew up in Africa and as a British person and knew what he was talking about from that end of it. And I, th- I think that's a terrific uh, story that we ought to pay more attention to flight, Peter Dickinson, um, that, that does that. So islands sort of give us that way into those, those kinds of things that you're talking about. Yeah. So I wholly agree with you, but that is still a Western way of looking at islands. Oh, totally. That's just, that's just it, <laughs> yeah. just saying. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm here to give you a Western perspective. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Um, well, just picking up on uh, something that Joe said, do we need distance to imagine new ways of living? Um, is there something about a mainland that is is somehow stifling to... I mean, we, we, we often see islands as 
places where um, rules can be, you know, in fiction particularly, uh, where rules can be broken down, they can be remade. I'm thinking of like um, Huxley's Island, uh, they can be utopias or dystopias, depending on how you look at it. Um, what is that, that particular element? Is it simply that it is separated from um, a, a, a larger kind of chunk of land? Well, I think that um, you, I had a thought that was in response to the beginning of your question, which was, uh, and then you got to the end of your question, and I sort of forgot what it was. <laughs> it's Monday at 11 at the end of a convention. My brain is not entirely here. Uh, you said something about um, do we use islands as... Um, was it about the distance? Yes, yes. Um, Can you repeat it, that part? Um, do we need distance to imagine new ways of living? That's the one, yes. I think no. And I think that if we're relying on that trope, that's something to question in your world building. Um, like, why do you have these preconceived notions about um, like the, the distance and isolation? And I think that Vita was making some great points yeah. about um, the idea of, of separation. Um, because like I totally have that that thing stuck in my head, and like you mentioned that um, like in the Philippines you see the ocean as connecting them rather than separating them, uh, and I think that that is a, a fantastic and um, important way of looking at it because um, we have we have the opportunity whenever we're doing um, world building or talking about places which are foreign or unfamiliar to us to think about the ways in which they're different from us, but also the ways in which they are similar to us or the ways in which we can understand and empathize with the way that they live. Um, and with islands, the um, like Vita mentioned, that it's a very mainlander idea of um, considering the island as exotic or, or separated um, and I think that that when you have an island in the middle of the sea, especially, or like past a some kind of other physical barrier, like the harder it is to get to, um, the easier it is to consider it as separate. But even within itself, there are things that are binding it together. I don't know if I'm making any sense right now. Please you are. stop me talking. <laughs> you are. I, I think within the Western tradition, the time when we started writing stories after Homer, and n not mythological, but writing stories in which there's an island, it's got a culture, a person goes to it and discovers things. It's Thomas More's Utopia, mm. which is 1510. And then Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, which is 1620, and then Gulliver's Travels. And after that, it's solidly in the tradition of this is how we do it. But if you look at those dates, that's exactly when Europe was discovering islands and continents with people on them. Yeah. And they, they wanted to sort of think about what is our relationship to these people? Are they more advanced than us? Are they less advanced than us? Are they the same? How do we relate to them? Could we find ones that were scarily more advanced and had better stuff? Because, because Europe hadn't settled down by 1620 into the position of we're better than everybody else and we're going to do all this terrible stuff. Uh, it was when they were sort of finding that, that identity. 
and and I think that the the idea of the mysterious island that could be like anything is part of that age of exploration, early colonial mindset. Hmm. And we often inherit that kind of unthinkingly. Yes. That we'll just we'll just unthinkingly do that. We Western people writing stuff will unthinkingly do that without examining it. Um, so before I say this, Islands of the Mind by John Argillis is a great resource for this entire panel. And this is where I got most of my reading done. Um, a little, I guess, socio-anthropological historical background. The people of the West were the last to, I guess, conquer, air quotes, water. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are many other seafaring cultures who got used to it and saw it not in terms of conquering, but in terms of providing and mutual relationship. And I guess that this is the way things happen because the West happened to be in uh, landlocked places. So when you finally come to the sea, the ancient people, you're filled with a deep sense of fear because it's it's big, it's unknown, it's how far does it go, how deep is it. So therefore I think that influences how all cultures in the world today uh, view islands and uh, mainlands. And um, I would say yes on a psychic level, um, at least in the West, you would need distance from an island in order to write about it and to imagine cultures around it. I mean, do you think islands are kind of our way of avoiding rules? Like, is it a Western author's get-out-of-jail-free card for having really badly behaved uh, characters getting away with things that they wouldn't be able to get away with in kind of... Oh, we're talking about Lord of the Flies. Yes. (laughs) I see, I see. not just Lord of the Flies, but also things like, you know, the island of Dr. Moreau or even the Tempest. I mean, Prospero is out there doing very questionable things. And, And even Robinson Crusoe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to think about it for a second. I think, <laughs> I, I think that's one, that is one use of islands that, that you get. I don't think it's as interesting as the things uh, that, that Alexander was saying earlier uh, about the sort of mystical island that might be there or might not be there mm. mythologically, or the stuff that Vida was saying about having islands connected by a sea. But I think it is one element in, in things that people use it for. Mm. I'm still thinking about this as well. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I have, I have a lot of um, angry thoughts about Lord of the Flies, but that's more in terms <laughs> of, like, accurate ways of representing uh human nature because like i had to read lord of the flies in um like my an an english 101 class uh, at the very beginning of college and of course my old white man professor uh was like this book is about human nature and it's not really it's about like toxic masculinity right um Except, like, because we live in a patriarchal culture, like, we are told that the culture of this small group of teenage boys then maps directly onto the culture of everyone. Uh, a small uh, group of white Western teenage boys. Um, even, even white Western teenage boys are not as bad as that. They're really not. Yeah. Like, in, we have documented examples of, like, people in situations like that that usually always don't end in murder um because like in crisis situations like that 
people tend to band together. We are social creatures. Yeah. We, mm-hmm. we form communities. Have, have you actually read the, the science fiction community's answer to Lord of the Flies, written the same year, published the year after, so clearly a response, which is uh, Heinlein's Tunnel in the Sky. Yeah, uh, that's it's fascinating. Not, it's not an island, it's another planet. <laughs> but but a, a school class go on a survival exercise that's supposed to last two weeks. They're mixed uh, gender, they're mixed race, they're a school class. Uh, and they uh, the, the the thing collapses and they get stranded there and they set up a society and they they do stuff and they you know there's there's the occasional bad person but most of them cooperate yep. and they they learn about the planet and and it's like really really clearly a response to Lord of the Flies where Heinlein read Lord of the Flies and he was angry the same way it made me angry <laughs> good and that's good. It, when, whenever people diss Heinlein I, I you know tell in the sky is a really good book. it's got a it's got a major character who is uh, a south african zulu mm-hmm. uh, a woman um and she's large and tough and and uh really significant main character she gets part of the point of view of the book um that you know he, he he was obviously exactly as irritated by lord of the flies as us yes. which is really you know really good to see good. somebody having a little bit of pushback on that on yeah. that humans suck mentality yeah it's uh, i hate lord of the flies yes me too <laughs> I, I also don't think it does not it has a place in today's um climate Politically, I mean, why yeah. be more scared of people, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. This is a time when we should trust each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now we're getting on to another Hope Punk yeah. discussion. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. <laughs> hope, hope Punk for the win. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm really glad that Alexandra mentioned toxic masculinity because obviously we are a feminist podcast and we like to talk about uh, the roles of uh, women and um and, and female creators and characters in fiction. Um, so do you think that islands and island cultures uh, can be places of power for women? Oh, definitely. Historically, um, sorry, before the Spanish came, um, my people were more egalitarian. We, they could, the women could divorce, they could own property, and um, the heads of each tribe were storytellers, they were either women or men who presented as women. And then when the Spanish came, um, all that was pretty much thrown down. And the women, this is a really tragic thing, for example, the women storytellers, because they held the key to the history and to the everything that the tribe is, what the Spanish did was they would marry these women and impregnate them so that the story is displaced and the focus must be on the child. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's fucked up. <laughs> to put it to put it briefly, that's fucked up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you see oh, things with like Amazonians and and lots of these kinds of women only cultures, and they tend to be constructed as around only existing within the islands, which is interesting as well. And again, going back to Cersei, like that whole thing, the island is her power, and you know, the the island is part of her, and while it's meant to be her sort of exile. She is actually much more powerful, more free while she is there on her island than she ever was, in, you know, in the halls of her father. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> just going to agree with me. Yeah, yeah. So, well, just, yeah. <laughs> does this mean that islands are feminist places? Potentially, 
They could be. It's a that's a great thought. <laughs> well, I mean, also, I think that that the island and the power for women from an island can come from the tidal aspect again, because the the tides and the moon are often linked to women mm. um, and women's power, and I think then that makes quite a logical connection between islands being places of power for women. That's my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great two cents. I mean, do we think that, like, are, are islands sometimes overlooked in the settings um, of fantastical books? Or are they, you know, as we were saying, you know, they're often used as kind of this... I don't want to get out of jail free cub, but, like, a way to, like, put their really terrible things happening away from kind of a main area, like, or... Are they overlooked generally? Or like how else are we seeing islands used in fantastical fiction? I think that they're not necessarily um, un- overlooked. I think that they might be underutilized because um, I think that there are so many um, opportunities to uh, use islands to showcase diversity within uh, both like intercultural uh, diversity, multicultural diversity, but also diversity within a culture because, um, like, even within one culture, like, the specifics can vary from place to place. Um, and the way that things are done on one island might be slightly different from the way that things are done on another island. Um, and I think that, because a lot of times when we're doing, I'm just on my back on my fantasy world building bullshit. Sorry, uh, <laughs> um, like a lot of times when we're doing world building as fantasy authors, um, we people tend to do like a monolith kind of approach to world building, where like everyone in this culture is exactly the same and has the same uh, thoughts and opinions and viewpoints and cultural context and so forth. Whereas within a culture, there's already so much diversity of thought and, and, um, variation. And I think that we could be doing more of that. I would definitely like to see an epic fantasy where the map is focused on an Island and not a mainland because in a lot of my reading, and I've read Lord of the Rings, Aragon, all that. You know, the island is always a, when you look at the map, an island is always a secondary character compared to the mainland. Mm. And uh, they're always like just places where you can get power. And now that I've said it, I've connected it to a place where you can pretty much steal the resources. Oh, so sure. that's not great. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, not, not Earthsea, though. I mean, Earthsea is a map of islands. Definitely. And that's one of the things that sort of makes it special compared to other fantasy maps. Mm -hmm. The second you open the book and look at the map, it's a completely different experience. Yeah. For the record, Earthsea is one of my favorites. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, Le Guin, just wonderful. Can't say a word against her. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking of two sort of related things as as both of you were talking I kept thinking about things in Earthsea where she just does that brilliantly and makes it really work with distinguishing the islands from each other and the culture from each other and rules changing the reaches and and just having the different cultures on the islands and the the one island where the, the toddlers are all paddling about in little boats and, and that kind of thing and the sea 
connecting the the islands. But the the other thing that I was thinking is I I, uh, I worked for a year in Greece between school and university, uh, and I was on the island that is known as Mytilene or Lesvos, uh, and I worked there, and and it was great, and and I loved it, and I would take boats to other islands, and and I loved that, and I've used this. In my writing, always, when I certainly used it in Philosopher Kings quite specifically, but I've used this experience of, of Greece in my, in my writing a lot, generally. But this year, earlier this year, I was in Hong Kong uh, for a convention, and I was there for a few days longer than that doing tourist stuff, and my son was with me, and he's grown up, he's 28. And uh, we took a boat out to an island that, is is part of the Hong Kong transit system. It's part of the city, uh, but it's a nice little island, and you can walk across it. And there's tourist stuff there, and there was a temple that he wanted to photograph and wanted to do. It. We got on this boat that is literally like the subway ticket you can use on the boat, mm. but it takes you sort of twenty minutes to get there. And we we're on this boat going across the sea to an island, and I thought, I love this. I love being on a boat going to an island. Why have I not done this for years and years and years? Uh, except to go on the ferry to Ireland and back. My husband's Irish. I've done that way too many times. <laughs> but to be on a smallish boat going to an island just to have fun. It's such a joy, isn't it? Right. And that, that joy thrilled through me that I felt all the time when I was 17, 18 and working in Greece. Yeah. And that I hadn't had since. And, and when you were saying about people going to islands to exploit them and their holidays and things, I think, well, was I doing that? I mean, Yes. Yeah. Because I was I was a tourist and I, I was going there as a tourist and, and to look at things and, and be a tourist. I hope I didn't spoil anything and I, I you know, d- didn't deliberately spoil anything. Mm. But was I, was I kind of doing that? But that, that joy, not the joy of the actual island, though the island was lovely and I really liked it, but the joy of being on the boat going to an island mm. that I hadn't been to before, that could be anything that was almost magical in itself, and that there was a deeply remembered joy. I think that is part of what we want to write about when we want to write about islands, that when we think about that that thing, and by we, I just mean me personally, I'm generally <laughs> one example here. But, but I think that's what, that's what I love, yeah. is that, that feeling there could be anything on this island because he'd looked it up, I hadn't. There could be anything on this island. And the sea is rushing past me and I'm on a boat. I love that. <laughs> that, was, that was my whole entire childhood, is being on a smallish boat oh. going to an island. <laughs> yeah, that, that must have been pretty great. Yes. <laughs> I do have a similar experience. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a Philippine writing workshop. And the, one of the weekends, we were told we could choose where we, any of the islands we could go to. And my... My group chose Sikihor, which is what's called our witch country, and it's an hour by small boat. So when I got there, I mean, yes, there was a church immediately when I got there, but the rest of the island is all, everybody warns us, okay, so when someone taps you on the shoulder, you have to find someone to tap it back because that person has cursed you. So the, the Sikihor has its own culture of magic and witchery, and it's really great, but I guess... What I was talking about is when we go to islands and appreciate their beauty, we should leave everything where we found it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
Uh, and just to go back to what Joe was saying about like the the joy of being in that liminal space, right? Like because that's what it is. Like you are uh, you are deliberately going through a transition from one place to another. Um, and tradition transitions can be quite scary and traumatic sometimes, or it can be like facing a a concrete moment of facing something new. Um, something that you have never seen before, something that you've never experienced before. And that can be like just so um, delightful. It does weird things to your brain, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, why, uh, picking up on what you were saying, like why do we focus on the fear of the mysterious instead of the joy of it? Because SFF is all about exploring something different from our experiences and we, we... you know, I think all of us here, we experience a great, a tremendous amount of joy exploring new cultures and, and worlds that uh, these writers create. So why do we think about something that we haven't, like, you know, a, an island that we've not explored as a mysterious thing of fear rather than this, this feeling of joy that you're experiencing? So, so when we talk about why do we think this, like, just to clarify the question, right? Yes. Um, we're talking about sort of the pattern of the literature. Yes. And then we have to look at, okay, who made this pattern of the literature? Well, historically, it's mostly been white men. Um, we are getting to a, a point where we are getting so many new voices, and that is an amazing thing. Um, and I think that as we hear from uh, more people like Vida, uh, we will sort of break the patterns a little bit. Um, but historically, like... It's been white men writing these books. So why do white men have this approach to fearing the unknown is the question that this really translates to, right? Yeah, I was was being more more polite. (laughs) Particularly if we connect that back to your earlier points about islands being places of female power, that that, that becomes kind of interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Actually. Perhaps. I don't know. I think also in human nature, it's so much easier to feel afraid. Negative emotions are far easier to feel than positive ones. But that's also why I think a stronger person really chooses to see things in a more positive light. So hopefully we can all choose to see new experiences in positive lights. Yeah, because with positivity, like you have to sort of keep yourself open and accepting of the idea that you might be vulnerable and that you might get hurt, but it might turn out okay. And if you're afraid, then you're closing yourself off. You're protecting yourself. Um, and when you are heading into a, a moment of transition or a, a moment of the unknown, um, if you are in any way insecure in your position, uh, then yes, fear is, I think, the natural, uh, the natural state to, to answer that with. It's a real world thing, which is that we're in Ireland. Um, my, my husband's Irish and I'm Welsh. So uh, when we were, before we were married and when he was finishing his PhD, I spent a lot of time taking boats to and fro uh, between Wales and Ireland. And we now live in Canada, both of us. Uh, and that was, a, that was a conscious decision that we made when we got married. But in some ways... Ireland being an island has been really valuable to it culturally, but also really difficult with with the North, Um, because you can't cut it off and 
tow it into the sea. It's connected on. There's a border. <laughs> and it's the same with Wales. Wales is a nation that is part of a country politically. So Wales has an assembly. It's part of a nation. It is a nation. It has a nationality. It has a language. It has a culture that is separate from England. But it's right next to England. It has a land border. There are people living along that land border. It's really mushy. Uh, as to to identity and culture and how people feel and connect, because you can just walk over it and and it's all intertwined in a way that the sea makes Ireland uh, have more ability to be independent. When Ireland started to, I, I often think of Ireland as the first decolonized bit of the British Empire, mm. uh, and and you can you can see a lot of interesting parallels between Ireland and. India and also Kenya and places in terms of what happened politically uh, on on independence. And um, because Ireland was an island, I think that helped with the post-colonial identity forming Mm -hmm. in a way that that Wales and Scotland with their land borders and their much much more uh, permeated borders... Uh, couldn't do and still don't have the independence that Ireland gained in 1922. Um, Maybe they will soon, within Europe. Um, (laughs) One hopes. Uh, But but I don't know. But I I think think that that it it can actually physically be a helpful denominator of identity. Oh, for sure. And also... um like we we've talked a little bit about like the ocean connecting us, but it, it can also be used as protection, right? Um, if there had been a land border between uh, the American con- uh, colonists and the British Empire, I don't think that America ever would have gained independence. Um, it was only because the ocean was there that it was too expensive for the British to continue to um, insist on colonization, or to, to insist on, on keeping their empire. It might have taken a, a longer time, but also it's like that separation can also be such a positive thing because it makes it more difficult to communicate. Like, there is that extra barrier. So there's, like, positive and negative um, aspects to both of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the sea can also trip you up. Yeah. Uh, when Magellan set out from Spain, he was meant to go to the Spice Islands, Moluccas, I think. But he tripped over my country. <laughs> and then he lost his life there, too. Um, so I'm, I swear I'm not angry at the sea, but in a way it may have betrayed us a bit because they went a little off course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're right up against the time but do we think that like technology is going to change especially the western view of sort of the isolation of islands because now everything is going to be connected like how how do you think that this is going to change our ideas about non-landlocked areas i mean specifically western ideas um because you know as we've as we've just established (laughs) um many of us still view islands in that sense I have a, a really quick thought re technology and islands, which is a thought that I've sort of been carrying in the back of my head for this whole panel, and I haven't <laughs> had a chance to shoehorn it in. Quick, um, quick. But like islands in science fiction are often completely different planets, right? Yeah. And um, 
as we get technology that connects us closer and closer on our own planet, we will also be developing technology that may one day allow us to expand into the rest of the solar system. And then we will have to come up with an entirely new attitude towards and ideas about islands as places out there rather than places over there. Yeah. In, uh, in Ada Palmer's Terra Ignota books, uh, there are flying cars that connect the Earth so nowhere is more than two hours from anywhere else. Everywhere is commuting distance. And uh, the capital of the world is, is uh, a specially built city in Sardinia, in a place that right now is incredibly inaccessible, that you can't really get to it even now, even though it's like in the middle of Europe, it's really, really hard. You really need flying cars. You would need flying cars to build, it, build it, a city there, which, which I thought when I was, when I was reading them is, is a very interesting illustration of, of, you know, no, islands are not on their own anymore uh, because it's all connected up in that way. So, yeah, I think you're right, we will. <laughs> I wonder sometimes what would have happened if someone from Asia had invented the internet because the way I see it, the internet also mimics the whole the way we view islands right now. So, in my view, um, forums are great places for us to connect and to come together. I mean, there are some hiccups in forums too, right? But then, um, <laughs> websites without comment pages are isolated islands in and of themselves. And I guess this is one of the reasons I am grateful for Facebook, as evil as it is, because I'm able to talk to my friends from all over the world, and that is great. Yeah. I think it's such a, it's a nice idea to end on a positive note. So um, I'm going to say, um, can you give uh, our panelists a big round of applause? Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.